0: On location
1: in the Holy Land, David Taverner from UCB travels with Bible teacher and church pastor Mike Beaumont to trace the life of Jesus, then and now.
0: To get to this point on our journey, Mike, we've come through some barren landscape. We've come below sea level to Engedi and an oasis.
1: Yeah, it's been very barren indeed, David, hasn't it? I mean, we've been coming through those Judean hills again, which is utter desert, and you look out and you just see rock upon rock upon rock and nothing at all. And then you go down below sea level eventually as the road takes you down, as you said, and uh, eventually you see there lying in front of you this lush oasis uh, and that's where we are today, Angedi, Gedi, the biggest oasis actually in Israel. And, and it's just staggering because, you've, as you've said, we've seen nothing but desert and rock. And suddenly th- there's trees and there's wildlife and there are birds and there are uh, animals. And, uh, and as perhaps listeners can hear in the background... Uh, a lush waterfall here and what's happening here is the waters are coming down from the Judean hills gathering and coming together and coming down this little stream uh, through a series of waterfalls one that's right here by us now and you know for anyone who's travelled through this sort of landscape to suddenly come upon this sort of oasis where you've got water the most vital
0: thing we need for life must be incredible and this is now a, a national park, a sort of hiking route uh, with lots of wildlife everywhere.
1: Yeah, very, very popular. I mean, we've got here very early in the morning before the crowds come, but uh, it won't be long before families are coming here to spend the day together. Very, very popular, and kids will be jumping in the pools and, and standing under the waterfalls.
0: Is Engedi
1: mentioned in the Bible? Uh, well, it is. Um, we find it uh, a couple of times in the Old Testament, Um, One of them is in the writings of Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. He talks there about his lover as a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Okay, So that instantly flags up that there in Solomon's time too, this was a very fertile area. Clearly vineyards were planted down here because there was this ample supply of water in an otherwise utterly... Arid area, but perhaps the best known example of this place in the Old Testament is in one of the stories of King David. You know, after David had been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be Israel's future king, yet Saul was still there as the present king, but he'd been rejected by God because of his repeated disobedience. Once Saul twigged that David was now going to be his rival, he started to hound him. And from the moment that David was anointed as king, he spent the next 10 years on the run from him, you know, hiding in places like this, hiding in forests, hiding in hills, even hiding in a Philistine city at one point for 10 years of his life, even after God had promised him that he was going to be king. And the caves at En is one of those places that he came And it's particularly well known because it's the place where when he saw that Saul was after him, he and his men retreated into the depths of the cave and then suddenly find that Saul comes in the mouth of the cave to relieve himself there. And David takes the opportunity to creep forward, cut off the hem of his garment and eventually say to him, look, I could have killed you, but but I didn't. And for a moment, Saul gives him some relief, though it is very short-lived. So, yeah, very famous place. Why did David come here when he was on the run? Because it was this oasis, because
0: of this water supply that's here. Yes, this amazing flow of fresh water coming down through this barren landscape. It's quite quite remarkable. Would Jesus have come here? Well, I, I think it's unlikely.
1: I mean, he certainly came down from... Jerusalem to Jericho which is sort of due east uh, of Jerusalem um, this is really southeast of Jerusalem so we've had to head due east to hit the road and then come south alongside the Dead Sea and um, we're about 75 miles away and I don't think there's any particular reason why Jesus would have needed to come here I mean it would have taken what four to five days walking uh, probably even now, let alone in those days. So we don't have any particular uh, reference to him coming here, but we've come here because this place serves as a fantastic picture of a promise that Jesus made elsewhere. And that is that just as this water here absolutely transforms a, a barren and arid landscape, so Jesus promised that he would give a water that would transform arid and barren lives.
0: Where does he do that in the New Testament?
1: Well, we find it in John chapter 7, and it's, it's in one of my favourite stories of the New Testament. Uh, in John chapter 7, it begins by telling us that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for uh, one of the great festivals, the Festival of Tabernacles, Jews had to go up to Jerusalem for three great festivals, tabernacles, Pentecost, and Passover. And so he's coming here as a good faithful Jew, fulfilling the law throughout his life. And he comes to celebrate that festival with his uh, disciples here. Um, it, it, It commemorated two things by the time of Jesus. It commemorated how the Jews had lived in tabernacles, tents, temporary homes during their wilderness wanderings when they fled from Egypt after God had freed them and came to the promised land. So it was a looking back in history to recall God's preservation and protection. But by New Testament times, it also celebrated at one of the harvests, So it therefore looks forward to God's provision. So protection and provision, all these things are being recalled. And the festival lasted for seven days. It was a really popular festival in New Testament times. Lots of celebrating, lots of conversation, lots of partying, lots of food together. And it lasted for seven days. But on the last day, the eighth day, the last and greatest day of the festival, there was held what was called a, a feast of solemn assembly. And that day there was, there, there was no parting and no festivals. And just before I read the passage, I need to perhaps just explain one of the things that happened every day during that festival. Now, as part of it, priests would go in joyful procession from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And, you know, there would be the priests and there'd be dancing because it was joyful time. I suppose it's a bit like, you know, the equivalent of Christmas in uh, Western Europe today, a time when everyone gets together and and has a, a good time. So every day, the priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a golden jug and fill water from the pool of Siloam, one of the pools that gathered the fresh water supply for Jerusalem. And in joyful procession, he would come back to the temple. And once there in the temple, he would pour out that jug of water at the base of the altar as a reminder that God had provided water for his people during those wanderings in an environment very much like that which surrounds us. But on the last day, the last and greatest day, because it was a festival of solemn assembly on that day, there was no water procession. And so on that day, after seven days of water processions, when there is no water that day, this is what we read in John chapter 7. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. For up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. So he's saying on the day when there is no water, when religion can provide no water, he stands up in that great courtyard of the temple and in a loud voice that would have echoed around it, anybody thirsty? Religion can't provide water today. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink, because I have a water supply that will flow from within you and that can last forever.
0: And what was he referring to?
1: Well, as John adds there in his sort of commentary, he was referring to the Holy Spirit. He was saying that when the time came for him to leave them, he would send the Holy Spirit, who would... Now, not just come on people like he had in the Old Testament. You know, there are lots of stories in the Old Testament where God's spirit came on people to do something. But it was normally for just for a particular occasion or a particular event. It doesn't seem like he ever stayed on people. The only possible exception to that, looking at the scriptures, might have been King David. But Jesus here is promising an experience of the Spirit that isn't just at special times or for special people or special occasions, but he's promising that each one of us can know an inner experience of the Holy Spirit from deep within us that will flow from within and that will be as refreshing as this waterfall is right alongside us here would have been to those who came to this oasis at Engedi. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? (laughs) Yeah, good question, isn't it? Well, the Holy Spirit, the Bible reveals to us, is what we would call the third person of our three-in-one God. The third person of the Godhead is the technical term for it. The Bible makes clear that the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there aren't three gods, there's only one God. The easiest picture i can use to describe it and it is a picture because anything falls short is that think of a cube a cube has three dimensions that utterly intercohere with one another you know the sizes of each side are exactly the same no matter where you cut it and it doesn't matter whether you look from this side or the top side or the other side of the cube it's exactly the same three facets to the cube three dimensions to it yet only one cube well it's a little bit like that god the one god has three expressions of that godness father son and holy spirit it's not like he was god in the old testament then he became jesus in the new testament and now jesus has gone he became the holy spirit now that was ruled out as heresy very early in the church all three of these persons exist at the same time, just as the three dimensions of a cube exist at the same time, yet there is one cube. And Jesus is saying, God, the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity, will actually come and live within those who follow me and give their lives to me. And like this waterfall in the background then, is it a continuous supply? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when when we come to Jesus... Um, at that very moment, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. In fact, without the help of the Holy Spirit, we can't even say yes to Jesus. But the truth is, although the Spirit comes to us at that moment, Christians throughout the ages and Christians in the book of Acts had those times when the Holy Spirit that they had still came upon them in an even more powerful way yet again. So this is if you like, at one level, a once-for-all experience. And yet at another level, it's an experience that we need to keep entering into. It's as if, you know, we've gone over there and stood under that waterfall and thought, wow, yes, life, refreshing here in this desert. But we can keep going back under the waterfall. The water never leaves us. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. But many Christians testify to how they have had an experience again and again and again. It happened in the book of Acts. You know, that powerful experience of the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples and the, the larger group of followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, powerfully transforming them. And yet by Acts chapter four, they've gone to a prayer meeting when it says, and then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and the place where they were praying was shaken. So they have another experience of the Holy Spirit. It's not that they'd lost him. He was still there within him. Jesus says, no, he's, he's like a river of living water flowing from within you. But you know what, sometimes, just like a bit like here, you can get rock falls at times and it, you know, it can block the flow for a while. And sometimes in life, stuff happens or we do stuff that we ought not to do. And you know, the flow of the river can get blocked a little bit. It never goes. And sometimes we need to deal with stuff or let God deal with stuff to clear that rock flow again. But the promise of Jesus, the inheritance of every Christian, is to have an experience of the Holy Spirit that is as real and tangible as if we were to go and stand under that waterfall now where already some people are standing under it and enjoying it. I was going morning. to say, there are
0: some young men, uh, you know, enjoying the refreshment of the, that water. And I was thinking, you know, can the Holy Spirit be an enjoyable experience? Yeah, Absolutely absolutely he can. Why? Because he's the presence of God.
1: He's the one who makes Jesus real to us. He's the one who makes the Father real to us. You know, experiencing the Holy Spirit is not meant to be a miserable experience. It is meant to be uh, joyful. Now, that doesn't mean we'll always be going around, you know, laughing our heads off. Sometimes, you know, an enjoyable experience can be a quiet, deep experience. In my own life, I look back, over the many years to different experiences I've had of the Holy Spirit, and some have been so quiet, so gentle, just bringing me to a place of utter peace where I think, don't leave here, don't leave here. At other times, it's been so powerful that it's literally knocked me off my feet. But we're not looking for how the experience is manifested. This is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. And what we are looking for is to have more and more of that person within us that jesus promised so that we can live out more and more of the life that jesus said is ours by right
0: and it sounds like jesus was using words that he hoped people would understand river of living water were there other descriptions of the holy spirit that jesus used
1: yeah and let me just say by the way rivers of living water the the expression living water to jews at the time meant fresh water Sometimes people have spiritualized that. No, he's saying streams of fresh water. You come here, you understand what fresh water means mm-hmm. when you've been wandering through a desert. Um, so he's promising an ever fresh experience of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you know, Jesus um, does talk about the Holy Spirit in different ways because after all, this, this is an image, it's it's a picture, the Holy Spirit isn't really water but he's like this waterfall he's he's like water um yeah one of the other ones that I, I really love the in John chapter 15 and 16 well actually from John chapter 14 through to 16 Jesus talks quite a lot about the holy spirit to his disciples in that upper room shortly before he's about to be taken away from them and he uses some imagery there about the Holy Spirit. And that, again, is quite significant for, for what this means. Um, for example, John 14 from verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor. Now, some Bibles translate that as advocate Um, A little hard to translate the actual word there in Greek, a parakletos. A parakletos wasn't an advocate in the sense of a lawyer or a barrister who spoke for you in court. A parakletos was someone who came alongside to help. might be someone who came alongside to help in a life situation. In a legal sense, it was someone who came along to speak on your behalf in court. But it wasn't your barrister. It it was like a witness for the defence. So I love this picture. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, who's going to be someone to come alongside you and speak for you and be with you. And he says, I'll give you another counsellor to be with you, the spirit of truth. Now, here's an interesting thing. In the Greek text that John wrote there, when he says another counsellor, there were two words in Greek at that time for the word another one meant another of a different kind and one meant another of the same kind. Uh, It might be as if you were saying, oh, my car is a Ford at the moment. I don't like it. I I think I'm going to get another car next time. You know, I'll buy an Audi. In other words, it's going to be a but a completely different sort. Or I really like my Ford. I'm going to get another. Mm -hmm. Exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And Jesus here, John records him Uh, in Greek as choosing that word that means another of the same kind. When I have gone I'm gonna send you someone else who will be another of my kind. He's gonna be to you everything that I have been while I've been with you he is going to be that to you when I have left you. If we just read on a a little further to uh, chapter 15 and verse uh, 26 to 27, he says, when the counsellor, same word again, comes whom I'll send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me and you must also testify. So his role there is going to be within your heart, within my heart, to testify to Jesus, to say, yeah, this is the truth. You recognise, this is the truth, isn't it? What you're reading here in the Word. And he's going to help you to testify about that to others. And perhaps just one final passage from uh, John chapter 16. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. For unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And of course, that's exactly what happened. He's saying here, the Holy Spirit can't come while I'm here within the plan of God. Mm -hmm. But when he did go back to the Father, he eventually sent that Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And when he comes, he says, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men don't believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So he's going to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. So a whole number of things this Holy Spirit is going to do. He's going to come and live within you. He's going to be to you everything I have been while I've been here on earth. He's going to be a friend. He's the one who will speak up for you. He's the one who's going to teach you the Father's ways. He's going to convict you of, you know, when you do wrong and when you do right. He is going to be everything that Jesus was, truly another counsellor. And is this Holy Spirit sort of forced upon us? No, not at all. In fact, when people ask me that question, I'm almost tempted to say, what an odd question. Well, first of all, why would we think that God would force anything on us. Um, and why would we want anything forcing on us? This is not something God forces on us. This is something that God gifts to us. <laughs> you know, it would be a bit like, you know, my wife buys me a present at Christmas and, uh, you know, she offers it to me and I say, don't force that present on me. Now, this is, this is an expression of her love for me. It's a gift to me. And I have to reach out and to take it. She can't sort of, you know, ram it down my jumper and say, well, you're having the present whether you like it or not. So I think that sort of idea that sometimes you do find, you know, people are almost afraid. I've had people say to me, well, I'm afraid to ask for the Holy Spirit. And I say, for goodness sake, why? And there's a lovely passage in Luke's gospel where, Jesus is talking about the father giving good gifts and he says that which of you if his father were to ask him for bread would give him a stone or if you were to ask for a fish would give you a serpent and he goes on to say look you being evil you know you know how to give good gifts to your kids how much more will your father in heaven give Now Matthew's version says give good things to those who ask him. Luke in his version puts the best gift of all that God has to have. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Luke sets it there in the context of the Holy Spirit is God's good gift. It's the best gift he can give you. So frankly talk of you know, God forcing the Spirit on you is is rather silly. It's a gift, for goodness sake, a gift that's as refreshing as this water that we're sitting by.
0: And, of course, a gift has to be received. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know,
1: the, the moment we give our life to Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes within us because it's impossible for us to be born again without that Spirit. Jesus made that clear in his conversation with Nicodemus in... John chapter 3 but you know if unless we're ready to open up our lives then for this waterfall to increase and keep flowing you know we've we've got to ask we've got to be open certainly in times past um, it may still happen in some places today but certainly uh, in Pentecostal churches for example going back to the beginning of the 1900s when the Pentecostal movement was birthed and then spread like wildfire around the world They used to have, and I think some churches might still have, what they called waiting meetings or tarrying meetings, just waiting, 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 like they did in the book of Acts until the Holy Spirit was given. Do you know what? Um, Sometimes that's good to do, but I've discovered sometimes the Holy
0: Spirit completely surprises me and comes when he chooses. And just before Jesus was ascending to heaven, was he also reminding his disciples about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, why don't we
1: read that passage? It's at the beginning of the book of Acts, where Luke tells us that after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God and proving that he really had risen. And then he says to them uh, in Acts chapter one, verse four, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait, for the gift that my father promised, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water. But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say that as that will happen, then they will go out into the whole world to share his good news. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes like a mighty rushing wind fills almost certainly the temple where they were sitting at that time, rather than the upper room, and fills each one of them, empowers them, transforms them, turns these frightened men into bold preachers and sends them out with the gospel. Baptized with the Holy Spirit, he says. Yet Jesus was using here a powerful picture to bring home again the depth of what God wanted to do through the Holy Spirit. You see, they were well familiar with the practice of water baptism. Many of them had been baptized in the River Jordan by John. And, you know, baptism in those days wasn't as it is in some Christian traditions today, a a sprinkling of water over the head or a forehead mark with a cross of water or whatever. It really was immersion. The word baptism actually means to immerse. The Greek word was used in all sorts of... Context, it it was used of immersing cloth in dye so that the dye got utterly into the fabric. It was used of uh, even pickling onions, leaving onions in there until it thoroughly got in. And that's the picture that Jesus is using. He is saying, You remember how John the Baptist, and of course Jesus' own disciples, are baptized as well. You remember how in water baptism you're plunged under the water completely so that your sins are symbolically washed away. Well, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the experience you have will be like that. It will be as noticeable, as remarkable as what happened when you were baptized. You really will know. So it's about being immersed in the Spirit, not just getting a little bit, you know, little cross marked on your head of the Holy Spirit. No, Jesus says, I want you utterly immersed in the life of my spirit, even as Jesus himself, of course, had been immersed in the life of that spirit.
0: And with that waterfall behind us still flowing non-stop, that's a wonderful picture, you say, really of this living water. Absolutely, because
1: just as this waterfall and the stream and the spring behind it up the hills transforms this barren, arid landscape here So Jesus is saying, my Holy Spirit can transform barren, arid, fruitless, useless lives to become like an oasis in the desert, a place that bears fruit, a place to which people come, a place that does people good. Now, who wouldn't want that?
0: Well, pray for us now, Mike, and we'll have a little listen, I think, as well in a second to the sound of that flowing water.
1: Lord Jesus, sitting here by this flowing waterfall, in the midst of an arid desert, we remember that you promised living water for all who put their trust in you. You promised to send your Holy Spirit who would transform barren and arid and fruitless lives as much as this water transforms this barren and arid and fruitless area. May we never be afraid to say, come and fill me afresh, Holy Spirit. Come for the first time, Holy Spirit, and transform my life. Because Lord, you only ever give Good gifts to your children. So we pray together. Holy Spirit, come and fill each one of us anew and make us fruitful for your kingdom, we pray. In your name,
0: amen. Amen. Mike Beaumont
1: and David Taverner in the Holy Land, tracing the life of Jesus then and now. Check out the UCB website for the free episode guide with photos, Bible references and background information. Go to ucb.co.uk forward slash Jesus then and now. And you can hear more 30-minute conversations with Mike and David talking about the Bible on the UCB player app. Under podcasts, just select Bible books, Bible biogs, or Bible surprises.